Welcome back to Money and Meaning, stories of unlocking the potential of global markets for impact. I'm your host, Alex Kravitz. Before we get started today, I want to apologize for the the lengthy delay between episodes. I am uh, really happy to be back and and excited about the guests we have both today and and in the coming weeks. After today's episode, we'll have Jewel Burke-Solomon from Collab Capital, Melissa Bradley from from 1863 Ventures, hopefully Rachel Robichaudi from Adesina to talk about their new social justice index, and and Fran Siegel from the U.S. Impact Investing Alliance to talk about bipartisan policy proposals for the new administration. But before I get too far ahead of myself, we have a, an amazing guest on today's show, Dr. Angela Jackson, the managing partner of New Profits Future of Work initiatives. Dr. Jackson manages New Profits' $15 million Future of Work Fund, which invests in entrepreneurs developing technical solutions to upskilling low-income and entry-level workers at scale. She also recently launched the $6 million Future of Work Grand Challenge in partnership with MIT Solve and XPRIZE. The competition aims to jumpstart a number of social entrepreneurs around the country working on this challenge and ultimately hopes to find livable wage jobs for 25,000 workers in the next two years. Prior to her work at New Profit, Dr. Jackson founded the Global Language Project, an educational social venture working to prepare students with the skills necessary to succeed in the global economy and workforce. Let's jump into the conversation. Dr. Jackson, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me, Alex. How are you? Good, thanks. Good. To, to kick us off today, can you tell me a little bit about New Profit? Yeah, so New Profit was founded 20 years ago by Vanessa Kirsch, and at the time she had what she says was a radical idea. She had looked at entrepreneurs who were scaling their for-profit businesses, and she was wondering why social entrepreneurs and nonprofits couldn't scale in the same way. You know, she was in Vietnam at the time, and she saw someone with a Coke bottle, and she was like, how can they scale these products to, you know, to different countries, and we can't scale education in certain anything else within our country and Mm -hmm. having a very high quality. And so what she did then, she thought about nonprofits and the support that they get is typically around programmatic support. And those types of supports come with restraints. They're restricted grants. So she founded nonprofit to really on a VC model to be the risk capital for social entrepreneurs. So giving unrestricted grants, really trusting the entrepreneur that we're investing in, saying that, you know, they know best. They're the expert at their problem. And if we give them dollars, we believe and trust that they can do what's best for the organization with that. So we're shoulder to shoulder with them. We give them a deal partner that sits on their board, that becomes a thought partner with them, helping them to think through, you know, complex issues around scale. And and what we've heard from our entrepreneurs is that they, even more than the money, they appreciate the thought partnership, the connections that we make on their behalf. So the the comparisons to venture capital don't don't end at at trying to find like high growth, scalable entrepreneurs. It, It also includes the structural support that you see a lot with investing in early stage entrepreneurs in terms of mentorship and peer cohorts and and things like that. 
Yeah, we, we really believe that's our secret sauce. You know, I started a social venture, gosh, now 10 years ago um, in New York City. And I'll tell you, you know, I was coming out of the private sector starting this like for-profit venture. I thought it would be easy because I was like naive, right? <laughs> and I tell people all the time, starting a business is starting a business. It doesn't matter if it's for-profit or non-profit, but you don't know what you don't know. And so what we're able to do, right, with our entrepreneurs is, you know, they don't have to make the same mistakes mistakes that we've seen patterns of mistakes before. I always say they can up-level their mistakes and they have room <laughs> to make different mistakes. And as a first-time founder, I remember there's tons of questions I, I had, even when I was creating my board, like having a deal partner that New Profit provides. We're professional board members as deal partners. You know, we sat on many boards. We've seen, we have that pattern recognition for social entrepreneurs. And then we have those connections. You know, we are one phone call away from any philanthropy. And when we have a, a uh, SE, the social entrepreneur that we believe in, you know, we'll pick up the call and make that that call to, you know, our colleagues and at other philanthropies. And what what's your role specifically at New Profit? I am a managing director of our Future of Work initiative and strategy. And really where I'm looking at is that employment, um, technology to employment realm. And how do you think about an equitable future of work? So we have a lot of entrepreneurs who are out there who are thinking about how they automate work out of the U.S., how they use more computers. I'm really thinking about entrepreneurs who are thinking about how do you make work possible for the masses, who are looking at the bottom of the quartile and saying, you know, are there training solutions that can help these, you know, learners upskill to a higher wage? Are there wraparound supports and innovations like childcare, transportation, what I call like the social determinants of work mm -hmm. that actually make it possible for someone to be in a mindset to upskill? You know, like you can be a job seeker and you can look for trainings and you can go online to Coursera, et cetera. But like if you can't get to your job because mm -hmm. you don't have transportation or if you don't have childcare, just really understanding that there are are like 71 million Americans that are without a college degree who are in need of upskilling. But we need to understand they're leading complex lives, especially with COVID, right? You know, they're homeschooling their kids during the day. They're working two or three gig jobs. And now we're asking them to upskill like on the little time they have left. So we wanted innovators to really think about these people and how we could make upskilling, training and supports meet them where they are. What what led to your passion for future of work? You you mentioned founding a social enterprise ten years ago. Was that focused in in this area? Does it does it date back before that, or or what led to your your interest in this area? It really leads back to my upbringing. I was raised mm -hmm. by my grandparents. Um, my grandfather was a factory worker at the local Chrysler plant. And I remember growing up and we were solidly like he was a blue class you know, worker, mm -hmm. um, but he was able to pay for our family. I was able to go on to college to get my undergrad. And, you know, here I sit before you with a doctorate degree. And what pains me now is that when I go back to my old hometown, those jobs are gone and they're not coming back. You know, mm -hmm. what my grandfather made back in 1980 is literally the same as what factory workers make today, right? So wow. although expenses have grown, those wages haven't grown. And I've just seen how it's decimated, you know, communities. I fortunately, for most of my life, lived on the West and the East Coast. And it really doesn't touch us as much, right? Especially if we're in the cities. But when I look back and I see that, you know, I made more money than my, I could have ever imagined, that my 
grandparents made, I was like, I really felt like there needed to be some shared prosperity. And I really believe fundamentally, like these kind of wage gaps and wage gaps across race, they're a detriment to our democracy when you see that. You can't have so many people who can't meet ends and pay their Mm -hmm. rent and worry about that. So you can do all the skilling that you want, but if you've got people who are still struggling about putting food on the table, like that's always going to be that calculation or trade-off they're going to do. And they're going to have to figure out how to put food on the table today, and they're not so interested in a six-month training program. Mm -hmm. As someone who's you know, admittedly not an expert in the space. When I think of future of work, I tend to think of like automation and, and artificial intelligence replacing some of those like blue collar middle class jobs like you discussed your, your grandfather having. Is that the major challenge? I mean, what, what are the major challenges facing vulnerable workers? Well, yeah, I see them. I see a few. And first of all, I'd love to say, you know, people talk about vulnerable workers, but, you know, I like to say that the future of work is the future of us all of us. So if you look at the research around longevity right now, you know, the first person that will live to 150 years old has already been born. So that means like over and over, we're going to have different job transitions. And I don't know if you can look back at your college career, but I think about my undergraduate, even doctorate, there are positions now created that weren't, didn't even exist then. So like Mm -hmm. we didn't leave school trained for these positions. So what the future of work for me means is how do we begin a system where people can be upskilled? It's not going to be four years and done or four years plus grad school and done. Like you need a system that allows people to weave into work, into learning and to weave out. And when you talk about future work, like my take when I started in this was it was really an upmarket conversation. How do you get middle wage workers to earn higher wages? Right. And Mm -hmm. A lot of it was because, you know, when you think about employers, they spend about 80% of their professional development dollars on their highest wage workers. If you go to the bottom of the pyramid, that 71 million that I mentioned to you, they get about eight hours of professional development. And that's really focused on compliance and it's focused on safety. So it's not really about improving their skills. You know, there's this trend that you see on the band on the coast that people just hire for the talent they they need. It's not about growing up people throughout the organizations. And that's a shift over time. In the past, it was about, you know, employers who are really investing in their employees and their trajectory. And so until we get back to that place, if we get back to this place, we need to think about how we all, like if we are relying just on our employers for upskilling, In this current model, it doesn't work. And if we're thinking about the future of work, we need to be thinking about how do you get those skills of the future? And more than just AI, it's like, how do you work well with computers? Because there's a lot of things computers won't be able to do. And, you know, people keep saying a liberal arts degree is going to be back in vogue. Um, And I read the story. It was an engineer um, at Apple. He was saying, I'm so glad that I took an ethics class. Because a lot of the technology that's being developed now, you make it, but sometimes you don't know the implications the far off. And a lot of decisions you're going to have to be making is problem solving. It's not about the computer. It's like, how will this technology live in the world? And so how the, the, the jobs that we're thinking about are those that can't be automated. Well, you'll need a person to actually think about these, think about the downstream implications, and be able to translate those in a way to their supervisors, to their team. Mm-hmm. So what, what are you seeing in terms of solutions in the space? What kind of, what kind of social entrepreneurs are you 
investing in it at new profit? Yeah. So there, there are a few that um, I'm really excited about that are what we see in kind of two buckets. And when I say future work, I, I don't think I mentioned this, but we, we invest in an equitable future of work. So visionaries who are, you know, building today for a more equitable tomorrow, right? So they're thinking about what needs to be true today so that we have more equitable future of work. So I'll give you an example of a couple of them um, that I'm really excited about lately. So one is called R3 Score. Teresa Hodges, the founder, she basically built akin to the credit score, a score that she could give people who were turning from the justice system. Um, Mm. One big thing that we know about people who have been justice involved, like if they're not able to get a job, if they are not able to find a place to live, sometimes that they go back and they commit another crime. What she's done by giving this kind of report is saying, if you've been out of jail for seven years, if you worked a job, if you got a bank account, like these are indicators that you have good credit. And she's done that on the scale, um, using the credit scale of 800. And I think what's unique about her idea is twofold. One is that she is a what I call and we call a proximate entrepreneur. This was based on her lived experience of being incarcerated, serving her time, getting out, and then not being able to get an apartment or a bank account. The second thing is like she's unlocking a problem that really we didn't know, a lot of people didn't know exist, right? And one in three Americans, sadly, have been justice involved. So this is this is an issue that's impacting many people. Um, and so she has a solution to target that. So I feel like that's kind of double. Uh, the other organization I'm excited about is called CareCar. So think Uber. But what they do is they train drivers to be, they call them patient caregivers, to drive them to their medical appointments. It may seem very simple, but when you're talking about people who are living at the base of the pyramid, they need transportation. They need to go to their doctor's appointments. And the reason they miss them many times is because they don't have transportation. And so what they're doing is, one, helping in that regard for people to get to their medical appointments. But the other thing they're doing is, they're not just seeing them as a driver. They're calling them a care patient advisor. And that is starting to enroll these drivers in the mindset that they're on a pathway in the health industry, right? That they're giving their advice. And so for us, we're looking at more either trainings or wraparound supports that help break down barriers to work and to give people kind of pathways. Yeah, those are great examples. Um, what is the most important lesson that you learned from your experience as a social entrepreneur that you've taken with you to the Future of Work Fund at New Profit? Yeah, well, the biggest one is, you know, money, you know, someone told me this and he said he heard it from uh, Jordan, uh, gosh, I can't find his name, but the person um, who shared this with me is the founder and CEO of Compass. And I was asking about raising money early days and, you know, he goes, Angela, people give money to people. And I said, oh, okay. I was like, people give money to people because I was new to philanthropy. And so I was like, what do you mean by that? And he was like, well, they give money to people they trust that they can do what they say that they're going to do. So it really is about relationships and how I've taken that to new profit. You know, I look at our co-investors who invest with us on initiatives like the Future Brand Challenge that I lead. We've got about 12 leading foundation co-investors. You know, I think about, you know, the boards and other of sponsors that we have come on, those were built 
on relationships over time. And so I'm often reminded of that when we're doing something new at New Profit. Yes, we've got 20 years that we're trading on, but it's still really important that we're like gathering insights from, you know, just the sector, bringing like fresh eyes to it. And also just earning that trust over and over by how we're investing and how we're thinking about our investments. Yeah, I'd love to hear more about the the grand challenge. We we had um, Casey Vandersterecht from MIT Solve on on the show yeah. six months ago or so. She runs their Solver Innovation Fund, and she talked a little bit about the the grand challenges that that they're working on. And it you know it's an example, a great example of. of cross-sector collaboration. Um, what is the, the grand challenge that you said that you're, you're running? Yeah, so it's, uh, it's funny that you said MIT and Casey. So the Future of Work Grand Challenge is a collaboration between XPRIZE Foundation, privately known um, and accredited with, it, with launching the private space market. And then we have MIT Solves. And what we wanted to do, our thesis was, you know, we have innovators who are out there who are thinking about how to innovate folks out of work or who are not thinking about how do we expand opportunities. And we thought, what if we could incentivize them to think about the marginal people who are living on the margins, the people who don't have a four-year degree, and thinking about how they can upskill them to these jobs of the future. Again, like jobs I mentioned earlier that really didn't exist when some of them were born. Like, you know, talking to someone about who's upskilling around cloud engineering, right? Like mm-hmm. that is a job. It's a well-paying job. You know, it's even talking to another entrepreneur. um, She's training people to be technicians for electric cars, where you go to the stations where you plug your car up. Like those need to be attended to on a regular basis. Well, who's doing those? How do you train for those? And how do you get that job? Right. And so part of that challenge is to have innovators like those who are looking at this new economy, new world of work, and, and having some foresight about what will be needed and what are some on-ramps to these jobs. So through MIT and XPRIZE, we put out a call to innovators. Um, We got over about 1,200 solutions. And from that, what we did, we narrowed it down to 300. And just this week with XPRIZE, um, we had 10 finalists. We're going to name five at the end of this week. And then two weeks from now, we will name 10 with the Rapid Reskilling XPRIZE. And then I think what's really cool about this is that we will take those finalists, those 15 finalists, and we're going to pair them with workforce boards in six communities and actually validate. So Mm. they, the entrepreneurs will be attached to job seekers, and then they will be eligible for prizes on the ones who have the best outcomes. So how many job seekers can they train and place in living wage jobs? And the entrepreneurs who do the most will be eligible for a $1.5 million prize purse. I think that MIT Solve invests in both for-profit and non-profit entrepreneurs. Are you, do you invest in, in both or are you specifically targeting non-profits? Yeah, so with this challenge, we're investing in both, for-profit okay. and non-profit. And then we are also looking to raise a fund, a follow-up fund. It's called the Inclusive Future Fund, where we'll invest in additionally in those for-profits. Because one thing that we learn from the entrepreneurs is that they want to work at this intersection of profit and purpose, but they need investors who want to go along with them for 
for that ride, or, you know, a bit more patient capital, a little bit more leeway on the terms. And I think that's something we can bring to the table. We've been doing it for 20 years. And if we think about some of the like complex social problems we're facing, like we don't need to divide it. It's like this arbitrary for-profit versus non-profit. It's like you can do good and make money at the same time. And we're seeing that with a lot of enterprises. And I think there's a hang up when you come to nonprofits because none of them really reach scale. And so in our view right now, we're really looking at how do you blend the two the best. That's exciting. And that that's a bit of a deviation, I think, right, from what new profit is traditionally focused on? Absolutely, it is. But if you think, you know, going back to our founding on a VC model, it was investing risk capital for organizations to scale. So it's doing the same thing, right? But now we're just opening our door to say to people, like our three score that I gave you, they're for profit and saying, we don't care about what your model looks like. Tell us about your impact. And if you have a market solution, that means that you're going to be around for a while because you're solving a problem in the world. You've been able to articulate that so that if new profit goes away or you know another foundation goes away, you can still do your program because it has market appeal. Mm-hmm. Are you providing uh, similarly unrestricted grant capital to for-profits as well, or is it a different investment structure? So we we have two. So okay. like, for example, R3 that I mentioned, um, they received mm-hmm. grant capital from us. And then we're looking at a second um, investment, which would be an equity investment under our fund. We mentioned earlier the ongoing pandemic and it has, you know, exacerbated inequities in a number of different respects. One of those is is definitely around employment. You know, we've seen record unemployment. The most impacted workers have been, you know, lower wage service workers and, and other vulnerable members of the workforce. What, what have you seen in terms of response in the last year? Are there any, you know, encouraging signs, silver linings that have come? Has this raised awareness about some of the challenges facing vulnerable you know, workforce populations or, or what are you seeing there? Well, I'm seeing a, a couple of things. One is about like really like peeling back the layer on who these vulnerable workers are and who's been most impacted. For instance, there was a report that just came out last week that said, you know, 140,000 women left the workplace. 140,000 wow. women left the workplace last month, right? Um, what it didn't say was that all of those 140,000 workers were women of color. And so it's really important. And what I'm starting to see is it's people taking a look at the data and disaggregating the data because it's important if you're if you're going to attack the problem, it can't be a one size fits all. So that gives me hope that people are telling new stories. And I think it's really important for us to talk about, you know, the racialized you know, wealth gap the racialized, you know, wage gap, like who's earning less. And we need to also tell the story about what does that mean for like our economy, right? So it's Mm -hmm. it's not about charity, right? It's about how are we better as a country? Like because there's this gap in, in wages by race and by gender, you know, we're losing, economists say we're losing over about leaving about $2 trillion on the table, And so that's not just bad for that person. It's bad for all of us. It's our economy that's hanging on there. So what I'm seeing now, what I'm hoping and what gives me hope is that we're seeing that we're we're all implicated in this. (laughs) It's not enough Mm -hmm. that my neighbor can't pay her rent. Right. That means that if she loses her house, my value is going to go down. So it would behoove us to think about how we innovate for people at the margins, because typically once we solve some of those big problems, the rest of us are going to do well too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's not a 
a zero sum game, right? I mean, having having people in the workforce making livable wage jobs is good for productivity. It's good for, you know, having formerly incarcerated citizens in, in productive jobs is good for the economy. It's not it's not like, you know, somebody being in a job means somebody else is not in that job. That's exactly it. And and like we saw with healthcare, right? You can be in a pandemic, but you're only as healthy as the sickest person next to you, right? And mm-hmm. so I could protect myself. I'm in, you know, Boston all day, but I still have to go to Whole Foods. You know, even if you get your um, delivered, walking on the street, you think who's caring for your child, the teacher at your school's kid, if they're in school. And mm-hmm. so like, it's, I need to fight for that person too and come up with solutions for their problem because, you know, I, I'm not absolved from that. I'm directly impacted. And so I'm hoping, this is my hope, and you, you'll learn, Alex, I'm this eternal optimist, but <laughs> it's really like that we are starting to see each other as one, really, and, mm-hmm. and see our fates combined. And that's why when it goes back to how new profit invests, you know, for us making these artificial lines between for-profits and non-profits, like it doesn't serve us anymore, right? To have subscale nonprofits, you know, serving 20 and 30 people. Like if we can bring in some of those market solutions and really make this work sustainable. So many of my fellow nonprofit leaders, they're constantly out there with tin can, you know, raising Mm -hmm. money, you know, month to month. And like, they shouldn't be under that pressure for trying to do good in the world while you have other people who are, you know, doing pretty well for themselves. Right, right. We've talked about this is maybe more so than most industries. It's really cross-sectoral work. You need corporations to reevaluate their hiring and labor practices. You need nonprofits that are doing the, you know, the upskilling. And, you know, you need government to provide funding and, and policy support. How do you navigate that kind of systems level change that is needed to make a dent in this issue area. Yeah. So when I first started um, at New Profit, I was working with John Kenyon. I don't know if you've come across his work, but Mm -hmm. he wrote this paper with Mark Kramer called The Water of Systems Change and really tried to understand. He did a paragraph, inverted paragraph, and talked about which levels that you you need to attune to if you're really going to get systems change. You know, the top of the pyramid was just about resource flows. The bottom of it is like changing mind and narrative. And so when I entered the Future of Work Grand Challenge, just the designing of it, I was really looking at this paragraph and saying, okay, who do I need at the table? Like what needs to be true for us to even have a chance at systems impact? And so a couple of things that we do, we got really clear on what we do, what we're not good at. It's like Clay Christensen, mm-hmm. what is your job to be done? And so what we did was we acknowledged the things that we are good at. We're we're good at convening. We can leverage our capital. You know, things that we're not expert at is like the workforce boards and those systems. Um, We have America Ford, which is our policy arm. So we wanted, you know, policy to be at the table in government. And so we went out and found partners in these different areas. And if you see, I'll send you afterwards. We have a phenomenal group of partners. I mean, like I said, leading funders, you know, leading government officials, people who are focused on policy, and then also people who are focused on, you know, actual workers' voices, like how do people feel who are experiencing this problem and bringing them to the table. And I will say, 
the work is not easy. You know, systems change is not sexy, right? Because most systems thinkers will tell you that change happens between five and seven years. And when I first started the Future Work Grand Challenge, I was pitching it to a co-investor and they said, Angela, what do you mean five years? We'll be onto something. We won't even be onto the future of work, you know, in (laughs) in six months. I was like, wow. Um, And then I realized the uphill battle, like, long-term change isn't sexy to um, to many people. But if you put that in contrast to like how long these complex problems have been in our world, like we know that it's not going to be a, a one really quick fix. So everything we're doing at New Profit, we think that we're building, right? We, we're moving fast, but we're also building intentionally and bringing the partners to the table. And that's really our secret sauce with this convening and are willing to be patient, right? I tell people, you know, entrepreneurs, fall in love with the problem, really get to know it so that you can understand, you know, what are the insights and things that you can change and what are the ones that you can't name those and see how you can partner and bring in folks to help you with that piece. Mm -hmm. And you've mentioned workforce boards a couple times and, you know, for, for such a universal challenge, a lot of this work feels really localized. Does that create a challenge for you in terms of trying to tackle these these challenges? Well, you know, with COVID, it may have been, but with COVID, you've got workforce boards, there are over 538 of them, and they're quasi-government entities. And what their charge is, is to help people in their local community get jobs, like connect them to upskilling, training, and placement with jobs. And so when you think about workforce conversations, we always hear the large number of people who are unemployed, but we also understand that the local context matters. You know, I could go to a general assembly training course and take the training course, but if I'm in where I grew up, Beach Park, Illinois, there might not be anything there for me, right? And so this game of getting people back to work is going to have to take on a local context in nature. Like we need to understand the board. We need to understand the industry there. We need to understand who's hiring. So for example, we're working with MC to have real-time data analytics so that when we're bringing in entrepreneurs to do trainings, that it's matched with what's actually needed today, which means that you're more likely to get some placement versus training for someone for this dream job that might be, you know, two hours, you know, or in another state. You mentioned earlier investing in proximate leaders and the importance of, of that. What do, what do you mean by that and, and why is that so important to, to success here? Yeah, when we talk about proximate leaders, we're talking about, you know, innovators, entrepreneurs who have come up with an idea based on their own lived experience, like they've lived the problem they're trying to solve and or that they have some hard-won professional experience that just gives them some insights that the next person wouldn't have. And an example of that is going back to R3 score when I talked to Teresa Hodges, right? You know, when we met her, you know, she shared that one in three Americans had been justice involved. I was like, that's a third, that's a third. And the problem that she was experiencing was that she got out, she served her time, good behavior, the idea is that she should be able to go back into society, right, and be a contributing citizen. But what she was faced up again, she couldn't get an apartment um, because, you know, she checked the box. It was hard for her to get a job because she had to check the box in so many places. And so she was like, how do I prove myself? I feel like I've done my time. And so when she thought about how can I be of help to others, she thought, what could be that credit report 
right? To show someone that this person is, you know, has a good reputation, right? That you can, that they're trustworthy. And that's where she built this. And she found out that there was a need because there are employers who want to ban the box. There are employers who want to hire, you know, justice-involved individuals who are previously justice-involved. But what she gave them by this report using AI analytics and data about, like, recidivism, who goes back, after which time. So she said, you know, the input she put in were, you know, someone who's been out of jail for seven years, person who's volunteered to do X, a person who stayed at their job. This reduces their rate to, to get in trouble again. And so... By doing that, she has about four major corporations now that are using that report. So instead of somebody who's been justice involved being afraid to talk about it, right, they can go in and just acknowledge it and and give them this report that has credit that, you know, other corporations are using. And so I think that's really powerful insight that she had. You know, another one that we invest in is called Girl Trek. And it's uh, for many years uh, around health, there's been this kind of movement to help black women get healthy because they're at higher risk for almost everything, but specifically, you know, obesity, diabetes, and a lot of people, researchers included, academics had approached it from, they just need to lose weight. Well, Girl Trek was interesting. They approached it from, black women need to get healthy. We need to get them moving. And it wasn't about weight loss per se, right? It was about the the health of their bodies, the health of their community. And so what they built just through a walking club, it sounds so simple. um, They've mobilized over a million black women who are walking, a million black women who have gotten together. And what they've seen as outcomes are, is that once women start walking in their community, they start getting things done. They, they notice the potholes. They notice the sign that's been broken down. And these were women who are now calling in and changing their community. These are places that they might've just driven by before, but now that they're walking in community, they see. And if you see there, now they have a Peloton group, you know, they're online, you know, Oprah's on board with them. I mean, it has blown up. A million women walking. And, you know, as a byproduct, the women have gotten healthier, their diabetes rates have went down. But it was a way to really engage them where they wanted to be. And that was, again, an insight from these two women who struggled with their weight, right? And felt like, you know, just giving me a diet is not the answer. I'm craving community. You know, I have high stress rates. I'm responsible a lot as a head of household. So those are the types of insights that we're looking at. And I have so many stories of for-profits and non-profits that do that. But I feel like that some of the smartest bets because they're, they really know their target audience and consumer. They know what they have now and what they don't have and where they fit in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it t- really ties in with, uh, I think you put it earlier, like falling in love with your your problem. Yeah. It, it sounds like. Um, for for listeners who are, you know, inspired to, to act from the discussion today, what are some tangible opportunities to build a more equitable future of work, whether it's through, you know, reexamining their hiring practices or maybe investing in some of these companies that, that you've talked about or, you know, supporting policy changes at, at the local level? What, what are tangible opportunities for people to, to move on some of these challenges? 
Yeah, there are a couple. I mean, first, as it's related to the future of work, I'd be happy if anyone's interested to share a list of the companies that we're looking at. We're being transparent about all of that. And we really believe in open innovation. And so I'm active on Twitter at AngJack, A-N-G-J-A-C-K. The other piece is, um, as we think about the future of work, we have a new initiative that's called Democracy Lab. And so we're doing an open call for innovators who are thinking about democracy, like how do we get more people? engaged. And again, that could be a platform. It could take many different looks, but we want to know your creative like idea around how to get involved with democracy. We are giving out $100,000 grants and we want to bring like leaders and innovators together in a cohort to help us think and really strike while the iron is hot um, with a new administration. The last thing you can do if you're just in your company and you're thinking about the future of work, the biggest thing that you could do is think about who are your entry-level workers? And really think about what are they getting in return from being there beyond their check? How are you building them into your next rung of leadership, right? How are you upskilling them? Because if each employer thought that way and thinks about what training, and it's, it's not even the employer giving them the training. It could be the employer giving them the time to learn something new. It could be an hour a week, right? So it's not really big, but just thinking about your staff right now and, and how they're upskilling and talking to them about their career trajectory. It might be at your company, they may go on to somewhere else, but that's the biggest gift that you can give someone as we think about this future work and learning. We're all going to need each other to help really think about what these opportunities look like and understand the pathways. Mm-hmm. That's great. I'm stealing this question from uh, Alan Woods at Mortar, who, who I think you are familiar with. I had him on maybe a, a year or so ago, um, and I'm, I'm seeing the, the the bookshelf in the background. You mentioned that you're an eternal optimist. What, what yeah. have you read recently that's providing inspiration to you? Oh, gosh. I mean, I, I read so much, but um, one of my favorites I'm like pulling out here, <laughs> um, it's called Eloquent Rage okay. uh, by Brittany Cooper. Um, it's more on the politics side. Um, she's a professor in New Jersey, but she really talks about the political climate and has like kind of a nuanced idea of solutions that are needed in this moment, which I think is really important. The other book that I just read that I'm really into is by a friend, Michelle Weiss. Um, She did this book, it's called Long Life Learning. So like a flip on lifelong learning and really thinking about the future of work, things that we should be thinking about in our learning and employment ecosystem, how that we all stay prepared, right? Not just the bottom quartile, but all of us things that we should be thinking about, including the fact that we're all going to be living longer, right? And so again, how does that look for us to to reskill, to find new passions, to be helpful to others? So those are the two books that I'm having a bit of fun with now. Eloquent Rage and, and Long Life Learning. I, yes. I appreciate the recommendations. Um, is there anything that I haven't asked you that, you, that you'd like to mention before uh, before we sign off here? Well, I think the biggest thing is I just love this conversation and I think it's so important. And especially in this moment, you know, we are at New Profit, we're convening more groups to have these types of conversations and to think about like, what are the small actions we can do? And when I talk to innovators, the problems always seem so large, right? You're focused on building your company and then there's this large social issue. You know, I always like advise and just tell the staff at New Profit, 
you know, look at the intersections because if we're all, you know, doing small things, it's going to add up to something big. Like we said about the future of work, looking at who you're hiring, you know, accepting a phone call, just opening up your database and your LinkedIn. So just really thinking about the small things you can do that are going to lead to like, not even a more equitable future of work, but just a more equitable world. Well, Dr. Jackson, thank you so much for, for taking the time to, to speak with me today. I, I really enjoyed the, the conversation. I did too. It's so great to meet you. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Money and Meaning. I hope that you enjoyed the conversation with Dr. Jackson of New Profit. If you want additional info about any of the topics discussed, check out our blog at socapglobal.com where I've linked to an article Dr. Jackson wrote recently in the Stanford Social Innovation Review about investing in proximate leaders, more information about the Future of Work Grand Challenge, and some other links that I think could be of of interest. If you have a friend who is interested in Future of Work who might enjoy the conversation, please share it with them. Give us a, a good rating on Apple Podcasts and anything that you can do generally to help us spread the word about this uh important work being done, we, uh, we very much appreciate. If you want to get in touch with me, you can reach out to me directly at moneyandmeaningpodcast at gmail.com. And love to hear if you have any feedback, uh, questions, guest ideas, just want to say hello, you can reach out to me there. Um, and as I mentioned during the intro, we have some great guests coming up in the next couple of weeks, including Jewel Burke Solomon from Collab Capital and Melissa Bradley of 1863 Ventures. So we will be back in two weeks with a new episode.